Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke and turn to chapter 9, verse 51. If you're using one of the Bibles that we've given you or you've got off the back table, this reading begins on 868, Luke 9, 51. We'll read the text in a minute. You might wonder why anyone should pick up the book of Luke and begin preaching at Luke 9, verse 51. You know, it sounds like I was just in the office with the dartboard picking out verses at random. Uh, if you have a good memory, then hopefully you recall that last, at the end of the last year and uh, into this year, we did a series through Luke, starting in chapter 1, and we went through chapter 9, verse 50. So we left off at verse 50 sometime, I think, in April. Uh, and now we pick up at verse 51. That still leaves the question of, of why, why stop there? And part of the reason we stop there is I, I want you guys as a church to have exposure to lots of different parts of the Bible throughout the year. So we don't spend the whole year usually in a one book. We, we go to different places. We, we studied in Galatians for a time this year, right? We, we studied in other parts of the Old Testament as well. We, we try to get ourselves a, a varied diet of different parts and genres of God's word. So we, we took a break from Luke, but now we're coming back to it. And we pick up here because this really begins a new section of the book. If Luke were being kind of edited and formatted by a modern editor, they would have started a new chapter here at verse 51 because the first nine plus chapters of Luke are focused on Jesus's ministry in Galilee. So the area around the Sea of Galilee, this is north of Jerusalem. And they're focused on Jesus' ministry there, but especially on revealing and answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is he? And so we saw, saw kind of a, a collage of portraits of Jesus in the first nine chapters of Luke. The first portrait is of his birth, right? Of him coming as the, the savior of Israel. He's the one who's going to bring comfort. He's the long-awaited king that's in David's line. So he's the king like David who's going to comfort and save Israel. Zechariah prophesied that Jesus was the one who is like the sun rising on Israel as they sit in darkness, the darkness of the valley of the shadow of death. So that's Israel. They're, they're in sin and exile and they're waiting for their savior to come and Jesus has come. But we also see Jesus as the, the one whom Isaiah prophesied. So in chapter 4 of Luke, one of the most important passages in, the, in this first part of the book is Luke, uh, Jesus goes to Nazareth where he's from and he goes to the synagogue and he reads the Bible there. He opens up the scroll of Isaiah and he reads a passage that says, uh, one has come to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus reads this and he says, today this is fulfilled in your presence. It's me. I'm the one who's come to, to liberate the captives and to give sight to the blind. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus raises a dead man. And then he goes to this dinner party, a famous dinner party, where he sits down with Simon the Pharisee and he notes how Simon doesn't provide normal hospitality, but this terribly sinful woman. I mean, she's just known as a great sinner in the community. She comes in and she begins to, to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. And Jesus says to this notoriously sinful woman, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus is showing us that he's God. Only God can raise the dead and only God 
can forgive sins. As a matter of fact, the, the dinner companions there who witnessed this say, who is this who forgives sins? And the answer is only God can do it. Jesus is God. He's this great king. He's the long-awaited one. Come to his people. But yet in the same chapter 9, is one of the first times in Luke's gospel that Jesus predicts his death. He tells his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. In the same chapter 9, he's also exalted on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he's momentarily transformed into this radiant being with Elijah and Moses. He's, he's presented in these two seemingly contradictory pictures. Glorious God, the long-awaited king, and the one who must suffer. The one who must die. These pictures are hard to reconcile. The Father's Son, the Chosen One, the Suffering Savior. How do we make sense of them? We see in this passage before us, disciples trying to make sense of Jesus. The first few verses we're going to read here in a second record three disciples coming to Jesus uh, and him calling them, and it's clear there's a lot of confusion about what Jesus is about. Not only are these unnamed disciples confused, but James and John himself, they had just seen Jesus transfigured on the mountain, and when they see Jesus being rejected in Samaria, they want to do what Elijah did in Samaria and call down fire on those who reject God's will. People are confused about Jesus. What do we do with him? How do we understand him? How do we know him? As Luke turns the corner here in chapter 9, he begins by telling us in verse 51 that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus has now announced he's going to go to Jerusalem and die, and now he's going. He's resolved. He set his face to go. And this begins this new section of the book where Luke is going to show us Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, teaching his disciples what it means to know and follow him. And we get to go along for the ride. As we study Luke, especially these next 10 chapters, we are going to find out what does it mean to know and follow Jesus. What does it mean to be a disciple? So this morning we're going to divide up the text under three headings. First, we're going to see that disciples must be prepared for rejection. Disciples must be prepared for rejection. Disciples proclaim the kingdom of God. That's number two. Disciples proclaim the kingdom of God. And finally, disciples represent their king. Disciples represent their king. We're going to use each of these three unnamed disciples in chapter 9, verses 57 through 62 as kind of our jumping off point. The disciples must be prepared for rejection, proclaim the kingdom, and represent their king. Let's go ahead and read this whole passage, starting in Luke 9, 51. We're going to read down through chapter 10. Verse 24, again, this starts on page 868 of the Bibles provided. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village, a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem and when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And they were going along the road. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, 
I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed seventy-two others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one in the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son, who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is God's word. So we see this passage, it's kind of divided up into three main chunks. We kind of have the introductory chunk, 951 through the end of chapter 9, where Jesus is starting his journey and we have these interactions with these confused disciples. Then we have a, a large section, which is Jesus' speech to the 72 disciples as he sends them out. And he's got these instructions for them about how to go about their business. He's got this word of warning to these towns where he's been ministering, Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum. And he says to them that they're going to face judgment because they've seen these mighty acts and they've rejected him. 
Then he's got this, these concluding words to his disciples where he, he tells them about how that they represent him and that he's revealed himself to them. And he, he even blesses them because they have seen the truth about him. Those are the three major chunks of the passage. But as I said, I think it's helpful to use these, these three unnamed disciples, or, or maybe we should call them would-be disciples, because we're not really sure that they followed him, and use them as a lens to look at this passage. So the, the first would-be disciple comes to him in verse 57, and this fellow is enthusiastic to volunteer. He says, I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. But Jesus seems to discourage him. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. As I said, Jesus is confusing, isn't he? We've already rehearsed some of Jesus' identity, right? He's Israel's God and King, the one they've been waiting for. He's finally come. He's casting out demons, he's healing, he's, he rules over even the fish in the lake, right? He, he brings all these fish into Peter's boat in chapter 3. People can see that his teaching is uniquely authoritative, and the scriptures have prophesied about his coming. Finally, the one we've been waiting for is here. It's natural for would-be followers to look at Jesus and think, well, this is just time for, for one victory after another. Right? He's come, he's healing, he's doing all these things, he's been transfigured. It's time for God's victory to be manifested on earth. And it's time for anyone who doesn't get on board to receive immediate judgment. That would be the, the natural way of thinking. Right? Jesus can do that. He could bring down God's fire from heaven upon these people. If, if Elijah could have done it in the Old Testament, which he did in 2 Kings 1, then Jesus could do it. And, and it would be kind of natural to think, well, that's what's about to happen. We're about to see God's presence on earth like we've never seen it before. But then you have these predictions about death. He's going to die in Jerusalem at the hands of Israel's leaders. And he's not only predicted his death, he's, he's now saying, I'm going there. The time has come for me to be taken up, he says, which is a reference to his ascension, but we know his ascension to heaven, going up to heaven, follows, follows his death. Jesus must face death first, before the glory comes. You'd think that these statements about his death would settle the issue. It makes it clear. Okay, death is going to happen. We've got to grapple with this. But it's a lesson that the disciples of Jesus are slow to learn, aren't they? And if we're honest, we have to admit it's a lesson we're slow to learn, too. We desperately want to believe that our following of Jesus won't require us being rejected. But Jesus says that he's going to be rejected, that he is, has come and he has no place to lay his head. And to follow him is to, to join him in that rejection. And rejection and persecution are clear throughout this passage. As Jesus prepares the disciples to go, he prepares them to be rejected. He, he says, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. You're exposed to danger. You're vulnerable. He tells them, you're going to enter some towns and they're not going to receive you. I mean, it's already happened, right? The, the, the disciples go to this village in Samaria 
right? And they're rejected. He says that's going to happen again. I mean, imagine walking for hours to a place, the dusty streets and roads and byways of Samaria, and you finally get there. You're tired, you're dirty, you're hungry. And Jesus has told you what to say, and you say it, and you're not received. There's no room for you in this town. Keep walking, buddy. And the reason they're not going to take you in is because of the message you've been given by God. The message you've come to deliver. This rejection is what disciples sign up for. This is so challenging for us because it's true. It is true. The kingdom of God does mean victory. It does mean victory is coming. Jesus is God. He has come to rule. And there's ways we're already seeing victory. We see healings. We see demons cast out. But we also see that the kingdom of God is for the moment hidden. It's glory delayed. This is what disciples need to understand James and John failed to understand this, right, in the first few verses of our passage. They'd seen Jesus transfigured into this glorious state, and they thought, well, now is the time. The glorious one's been revealed. Jesus is going to unleash some signs and wonders, like Moses did upon Pharaoh, like Elijah did upon those rebellious prophets of Ahaziah in 2 Kings. They want to call down fire, but Jesus rebukes them. He rebukes them Because his glory is not to be revealed in that way, at least not now. He clear later in the passage, unbearable judgment will be unleashed on those who reject Jesus. But it's coming in the future, after his suffering. For the kingdom of God to come, Jesus must die. The glorious resurrection and ascension and enthronement happens after death. Disciples needed to learn this. And disciples today, we are in a similar position. Even though we live after the glorious resurrection of Christ, the exalted Christ we worship is in heaven. And so we live in days when the glory of Christ is still in many ways hidden. Right? The glory of Christ when it's seen is, is meant to be seen in us. In the church, trusting Jesus and loving each other. And so we live in this time of of waiting. We live in the days of faith, not sight. And this comes with its own hardship, right? We're, We're waiting and there are those who reject the gospel who will persecute those who believe and preach the gospel. We may be rejected. Even though this comes with hardship for Christians, we also recognize It's a grace to the world. Because it means, as long as judgment is delayed, salvation and repentance are possible. We live in the days where the exalted king is patiently withholding the full weight of his judgment against man's sin. And he's doing so, so that his people can proclaim the good news of salvation in Christ's name. So like Jesus, we warn that judgment is coming, but we do so proclaiming that judgment can be avoided. It can be avoided by repenting and trusting in Christ's saving work on the cross. So disciples today, just like disciples in Jesus' day, must be prepared for rejection. 
And Jesus even assures us that when people reject us, if, if we are faithfully preaching the gospel, they are really rejecting Christ himself. You notice that in verse 16, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. When someone rejects the gospel, they're not rejecting you personally. I mean, they may not like you, I don't know. But they're ultimately rejecting Jesus, rejecting God himself. With each of the disciples in verses 57 through 62, these people who either come to Jesus or, or he calls them, we don't get a resolution to their stories. We wonder, what happened to them? This man, when he heard about how foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, did, did he go home sorrowful like other people did who met Jesus? What about you and me? When we hear about Jesus, the rejected Savior, when we're told that persecution is normal for Christians, are we willing to follow the rejected Savior? Or are we addicted to being accepted by our neighbors? Do we want the same wealth and influence that our neighbors have? Do we want to sit at the cool kids' table? The glory and acceptance the world offers are appealing and tempting, aren't they? We may need to begin our growth in following Jesus by being honest, by being able to admit that we do want to sit at the kids table, cool kids' table. We do want the wealth and influence of the world. We need to repent of that. We need to confess to God, the ways we despise the rejected Savior. We need to confess it to God, and it may be good to confess it with others. Talk about, with other brothers and sisters who love you, the way that you're tempted to despise the rejection that comes with following Christ. And also consider the worthiness of being rejected for Christ's sake. If Christ really is who he says he is, if he's really God in the flesh, if he's really the one who saves people from their sin, if he's really the one who provides true and ultimate relief to human beings in our suffering, then he's worth all the rejection we can imagine. It's better to be thought a fool for Christ's sake, for the sake of knowing and preaching Christ, than to be thought wise by the world. It's better to die with Christ than to live without him. Do you believe that? We can also take courage from the scriptures that rejection for the sake of Christ is a sure sign that we belong to Christ. Romans 8.17, the Apostle Paul writes that we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified. Peter wrote that when we endure in our suffering for doing good, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. If we suffer for righteousness' sake, he says, we will be blessed. We spoke earlier about how we warn that judgment is coming. In a similar way, Christians suffer rejection now, knowing that glory is coming. Jesus died and rose again, and he's in glory now, 
And he promises that same trajectory for us. We will die and rise again, but we will meet Christ in glory. But in the meantime, disciples must be prepared for rejection. That's the first disciple. He was an eager volunteer. The second disciple is commanded by Jesus, follow me. See this in verse 59. To another, he said, follow me. But this disciple has a reason for delay. He's got important business to attend to. He says, let me first go and bury my father. Seems like a legitimate request. And then Jesus says something again surprising and confusing. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. In any culture, this is a shocking command, right? What responsibility should trump taking care of your your own dad's funeral arrangements? And if anything, the social conventions around burying the dead in Jesus' day were, were even more important for Jews. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus is not making any kind of categorical prohibition against caring for your family or going to your dad's funeral. He's not saying we should disregard such matters. But he is saying that something more important has come. Something even more important than those important things. So the point of this shocking response is to emphasize the positive thing Jesus commands. He tells his disciple, but as for you, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Here is what's really important. Jesus is saying, I am am God come in the flesh, and here's what I say are your marching orders. Follow me and proclaim the kingdom of God. Disciples proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus is demonstrating that he has unique authority and power. He is God. He is this long-awaited prophet, greater than Elijah or Moses. And his commands now become the main priorities for God's people. What he says, we do. A shift is taking place. No longer do do God's people look back to the, the Old Testament covenants and laws. They look to this one, Jesus, and he says, go and proclaim the kingdom. And so that's what we give our life to doing, to proclaiming the kingdom of God. It's fair to ask then, what does it mean to proclaim this kingdom? If that's what we're supposed to be doing, how do we proclaim it? When we look at the instructions that Jesus gives to the 72, I think we we find something very helpful in that Jesus tells them in verse 5 that when they enter a house, they're to say, peace to this house. He says, go your way, Um, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one in the road. So you're, you're not just making social calls. When you enter a house, first say, peace be to this house, in verse 5. It may be tempting to think, well, this is just the customary greeting. This is maybe what Jews did. But no, there's more to it than that. And that's because peace is essential to the proclamation of the kingdom. Just to see this more clearly, look back in chapter 7. Probably just a couple pages back in your Bible. This incident I cited earlier with the woman this notorious sinner who's washing Jesus' feet at the dinner party. If you recall there, Jesus uses her presence there and her great love for him to teach Simon the Pharisee about the connection between being forgiven much and loving much. 
But then after he's done teaching Simon the Pharisee, he turns to the woman in verse 48, this notoriously sinful woman. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? He ignores them. And he says to the woman again, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman is distraught because of her sinfulness. And she's come to the Savior and he pronounces three things. Forgiveness, salvation, and peace. Forgiveness, salvation, and peace. I think when we hear this peace pronounced by the disciples in chapter 10, this is what they're talking about. And this peace is not the peace of the anti-war movement of the 1960s and 70s. It's the peace of God announced to his enemies, people who are his enemies because of their sin against him. It's relief from God's judgment and restoration to fellowship. This peace is the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that though God made us happy and holy, we rejected his good will for us. We rebelled against him. And because of this rebellion, all people are born in a state of slavery to sin, spiritually dead. It means our our hearts are set on serving ourselves and not serving God, our maker. And so we make ourselves God's enemies by our sin. We are all in the state of that sinful woman, but not all of us know it. The good news is that God didn't leave us there. The Son of God took on flesh in order to suffer and die in the place of sinners. God's own Son was born so that he could be treated like an enemy, so that God's true enemies, us, could have peace with God. Christ died to pay the price of sin that we cannot pay, and sinners receive this forgiveness, receive salvation by repenting of their sin, by owning it, by saying, I deserve hell because of my sin, and trusting that Jesus took care of your sin on the cross. So it's by faith that sinners are forgiven and reconciled and saved. By faith, we have peace with God. We're saved from the wrath of God that we deserve. Gloriously, this is what Jesus came to proclaim. He didn't come to proclaim immediate judgment. He came to proclaim peace to those who are far away from God. That is very good news that when God shows up, his word is peace. So part of what we proclaim, the main part, is this peace But there is this part of judgment that we do proclaim. We proclaim that judgment is coming. The kingdom of God includes both proclamations. So we we see this in verses 8 through 11 when Jesus is instructing them on what to do when they enter a town. So he says that they should enter towns and if they're received, they'll, they'll heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near you. 
The kingdom of God has come near is the, is the, is the essence of the proclamation in both. But with this, this second proclamation, it includes this warning of judgment. And once Christ says this, it sends him off in kind of a, a rabbit trail of pronouncing judgments coming. This is when he, he pronounces judgments against these cities of Galilee. And he, he compares them to Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are like the, the coastal elite cities, the places where all the trade happens. But they're Gentile cities. Jesus says it's, it's going to be better for those Gentile cities, those worldly places, than it will be for you because you've seen me and you've rejected me. So we do announce that judgment is coming. But we announce that judgment can be avoided. Unbearable judgment is coming, but can be avoided by faith in Christ. Disciples are given this job by Jesus. This is your marching order. Proclaim the kingdom of God. Don't go bury your dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom, no matter how it's received. And there's a reason why this is the message that should reorient us and grip us. And that's because disciples are first and foremost those who have been saved by this gospel. When the disciples return from their mission trip, they come back to Jesus and they're rejoicing about the great power that they've exhibited over evil spirits. And Jesus first celebrates with them and he, he says he sees Satan fall, but then he offers them a gentle rebuke in verse 20. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Disciples are first and foremost those who were headed for hell, but have been saved by Christ. Now we're no longer in bondage to death and hell. Our names are written in heaven. That's the only reason anyone's a disciple is because God has saved us through the gospel. To put an exclamation point behind this idea, Jesus says that the only way anyone could even know this gospel truly is if God graciously chooses to reveal it. Keep in mind, he's just warned the towns of Galilee about how they've perceived something. They've seen wonderful works. They've heard the gospel message, but they've not repented. Now look at what he says has happened to the disciples. First begins with a prayer to God, and then he turns and talks to his disciples in verses 21 through 24. It says, In that same hour, the disciples have returned. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Just stop there. All things have been revealed to the Son by the Father. And the Son and the Father have this perfect knowledge of each other. They, they know the truth about God. And the Son can reveal him to some. And now he turns to the disciples, and he says privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. The disciples are not disciples because they were so wise and insightful. 
Just like Israel wasn't a country blessed by God because they were so awesome. It's clear they were not. It's clear that we are not so wise, insightful, and awesome. The only reason any of us can see and know Christ clearly is because God the Father and God the Son have graciously opened up our eyes. He's blessed us with supernatural sight and hearing. God's gospel work begins with this spiritual awakening. If you're here thinking, well, I don't know if I've I've had that. This is a good thing to pray for. God, open my eyes to see your truth. It's a prayer God is blessed and honored to answer. And if you're a Christian here, do you you see how blessed you are? We've reduced blessed to a silly hashtag, haven't we? But the blessing of God here means that you won't die and go to hell. It means that you're not blind to Christ's work anymore. To be blessed by God means that you've heard the pronouncement of peace as an enemy of God and you believe it and you've been forgiven and reconciled and saved. This is why we rejoice and why we proclaim. Disciples are like lambs among wolves and yet no one can harm us, he says. Because our names are written in heaven. Disciples will be rejected. We will be socially outcast. We may be impoverished. We may even be killed like Jesus was. But none of those things can separate disciples from the love of God in Christ. And all of this is true. Not because we are wise or mighty. But because of the gracious will of God. This is why disciples proclaim the gospel. Because this gospel has saved us. It's reoriented our entire lives. We have our lives. We live because of Christ. And so we give our lives to him. Again, we don't know whether the second disciple obeyed Jesus' command to follow him. Did he give himself to proclaiming the kingdom? doesn't say. Will you give yourself? To proclaiming the kingdom? One of the reasons we gather as a church is to proclaim this good news. And where the first disciples had miracles to confirm the gospel, we are the miracle. Our love for each other, our supernatural unity in Christ displays the manifold wisdom of God. So one way you can reorient your life around proclaiming the gospel is to give yourself to a good church. Love the members there. Proclaim the gospel with them. You can ask, do your relationships in the church reflect your commitment to proclaiming the gospel? Or are you worried about other affairs? We also proclaim the gospel in our relationships. So parents proclaim the gospel to their children. Husbands and wives proclaim the gospel to each other. Employees proclaim the gospel to their coworkers. Neighbors proclaim the gospel. Proclaiming the gospel, speaking the words of the gospel, is what disciples do. So when Jesus tells this one unnamed disciple to go, go preach the gospel, leave the, leave the dead to bury their own dead, he's, he's speaking to every disciple. He's saying, reorient your life around proclaiming the gospel. Is that what you're giving your life to? Or have other priorities pushed aside proclaiming the gospel? Disciples proclaim the gospel.
Finally, this third disciple that comes to Jesus, he's another volunteer. He comes to Jesus in verse 61 of chapter 9. I will follow you, Lord, but first, let me first say farewell to those at home, at my home. It sounds a bit like the prophet Elisha. When the prophet Elijah called him, he said he was, he was plowing the, the fields with, with a yoke of oxen. He said, well, first let me go say bye to my mom and dad. And Elijah said, fine. And Elisha goes home, and he doesn't just say bye. He slaughters the oxen and throws a feast. I mean, it probably took two days to do this. But then he goes and follows Elijah, and that seemed fine. We don't get any negative comments about Elisha. But Jesus seems to be doing something different. He's displaying his unique authority as the God-man in the flesh and saying to follow me, to be fit for my kingdom, you must have a single-minded devotion to me. It's because disciples represent their king. Disciples represent their king. Disciples are deputies of the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout this passage, we see Jesus doing this deputizing work, we might say. So it's clear Jesus is in charge. He's telling the disciples where to go, what to do. He's sending them here and there. He determines who is and who is not a worthy disciple. Even when he begins his instructions to the 72 by teaching them how to pray, he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. He wants them to know, I am the sender, you are the goer. This is my work. I authorize you to do it, and I will equip you to do it, and you're not to carry out your own agenda. You're not to look back. You're not to greet others along the way. You're to do the job you've been deputized to do. You're to represent me. You're to focus on what I've given you. And so we see this in every aspect of our lives. We're to be representatives of the king even in the way that we depend on God to provide for us. So the disciples were told not to carry stuff with them, no knapsacks, no extra stuff. They're not supplying their own needs for this journey. Now, this is not to be taken as like a, an iron law for missionary work as we just send people out completely unprepared and, and trust God. But, but the underlying principle is essential. It's God's work, and God provides for his representatives, and his representatives trust him to provide. Think about ourselves as a church. We might think, well, we need more people and resources. But we trust that God has equipped us for where we are, and we're going to do God's work in the strength and with the provision that he's supplied, relying on the Lord to do his work. We understand that we're deputies, his commissioned representatives, and this changes the way we live. We want to live in such a way that our lives reflect well on the one we represent. I mean, don't we know how scandalous it is when a, when a police officer is, is exposed as corrupt? Right? It, it brings questions on the entire department, you know, and, and even we look at how, how will the department deal with him? Will they, will they rob him, you know, take away his badge and, and expose him to criminal prosecutions? We, we, we don't want to be that, that police officer who brings shame on the badge. We don't want our lives to be the cause of any shame brought upon the good news. We, we know we represent our king. The fact that we also represent Christ should make us bold, right? We're not speaking on our own authority. We're speaking the message he's revealed as those deputized by him. We represent him as his church. So we speak his message boldly. 
And as we've already talked about, we don't get personally offended when the message is rejected. You know, what's on the line when you share the gospel? Your reputation may be on the line. You may lose social standing. But ultimately, you're there to present Jesus. And if they reject you, it's Christ they're rejecting. It may come at a personal cost, but ultimately this mission is not about us. It's about the Lord making his good news of salvation known. And he's pleased to use you and me to carry out that work. The question this last disciple raises is, who is fit for this work? Clearly this one who looks back is not fit. But does this mean we have to clean ourselves up, get the kind of the heart internal scrubbing brush out and get rid of all you know, other motives? I think we're meant to recognize we cannot make ourselves fit. The real question of this is, is has your heart been captured by the gospel? That's the only way to become fit. Have you been captured by the gospel? Or are your loyalties divided? You've heard the gospel, but you'd rather have the approval of the world. You see something good about Jesus, but you don't want any of his rejection or suffering. Has your heart been captured by the gospel? Forgiveness, salvation, and peace. These gifts of the gospel are only available to those who know how lost they are. Who know how big of a sinner we are. If that's you, if you're coming to that place today of seeing the bigness of your sin then come to the Lord. Come to Christ. He will make you fit. There's that wonderful line. Let not fitness make you... I can't remember now. (laughs) Make you wonder. All the fitness God requires is to feel your need of Him. That's what makes you fit for this kingdom. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness He requires is to feel your need of Him. Today is the day to come, to be made fit by Christ. Believe and be saved. Let's pray. O God in heaven, what good news that when you came, you came announcing peace. We don't deserve have been spared your wrath and yet you have shown your mercy to us you have poured out your gracious will upon us by by showing us Jesus and so father we pray that we would cling to him that we would feel our need for him and rejoice that because of Jesus our names are written in heaven it's in his name we pray amen